This episode of Film Jive is brought to you by Audible.com, the world's largest selection of premium audiobooks and spoken word content with over 150,000 titles to choose from. To sign up for your free 30-day trial, please visit audibletrial.com slash filmjive. And welcome to the Film Jive Podcast. We are recording this episode on September 6, 2014. My name is Zach. And I am Andy. This is episode number 78, where we are discussing Georges Franju's 1959 French film, Head Against the Wall. So, Andy, would you please read the plot synopsis? After defying his father, Francois is involuntarily committed to a mental hospital, I'm sorry, to a mental home that practices unconventional methods of treatment. While there, Francois befriends Hortevan? Hortevan? Yeah, sure. An an epileptic. And together, the two attempt an escape to Paris. However, they are caught and returned to the institution before Francois can prove his sanity. So, uh, what did you think of uh, Head Against the Wall? Do you have any opening comments about Head Against the Wall, actually? I sure do, but uh, real quick... um... You don't hear my cat snoring, do you? <laughs> oh, I wish I could. That's that's good to know. He just started snoring. Well, uh, so b- before, I guess, preparing for this episode, I had only seen two Franju films, mm-hmm. both of which were short documentaries he made, one of which being Blood of the Beasts, which you won't, you kind of have boycotted to watch, right? You just can't Yeah, I it. mean, just because I don't want to see the stuff that he shows in the movie. Right. Completely understandable. It is, I think, one of the greatest films I've ever seen. Yeah, I know. It's supposed to be fantastic. And it's like, it is a commentary on the slaughterhouses, I'm assuming. Not him like, rah, rah, look at, you know, look at the, not, it's not like a cannibal holocaust sort of thing. No, no, but even still, I, I think just the inexplicable nature of the footage is kind of just pretty jarring. Yeah. Uh so since then, uh, because we had a little more time between the two recordings, I saw a few for few more of his documentaries, and then I saw Eyes Without a Face, and of course Head Against the Wall, and uh, I think Georges Franju is a pretty great guy. I uh, I like his movies, and uh, one reason I really like him is how his experience as a documentarian earlier in his life seems to always kind of find a way into his fictional films. Uh, There's a weird dedication to procedure that feels very rare for these kinds of genre movies, although I think this movie is a bit more straight in its, I guess, dramatic leanings in comparison to Eyes Without a Face, but there are still a lot of kind of, I guess, horror stylization. Oh, yeah, he's definitely, yeah, he's definitely shooting this as a horror film. But, I I really like how he emphasizes and then expands really small details. Um, And he finds ways to, I guess, increase the potential of an image. I I would say that a really good example of this, and this is something that recurs throughout the movie, is when Francois escapes through the cemetery and he's running through the fields for no real logical reason 
the fields are on fire. Well, that whole scene was very surreal because when he knocks the priest into the hole, not the priest into the hole, but when he uh, knocks the uh, asylum worker into the hole, the priest looks at him and then starts re- reading the rites. So at that moment, and then when he ran through the fire, I was thinking, is this really happening? Well, it did definitely feel like a visual expression that was like sort of communicating the mindset of the character, I guess, as he's sprinting across this field and it's like finally freedom or something. Yeah. It's just this blaze. Yeah. Like that's something that I don't feel like a lot of directors would make the effort to do. You know, you would just get the shot of Francois running across the field and that would be it. Especially at this time when Franju was making fictional films at the height of the French New Wave, he really did turn away from the realism that a lot of those films employed. Mm-hmm. Well, he reminds me, I haven't seen a lot of Louis Bunuel, but it seems pro- his use, his approach to surrealism is very similar. I would say this is definitely a surreal film, but it's yeah. very subtle in how it communicates that. Yeah, which, you know, after you mention that, I can see it, like how Bunuel used it in, like, Los Al- Alvidados, the surrealism in that. Well, I would even think, like, The Phantom Carriage or some okay, of these yeah. later films where they're kind of, like, social critiques, but they're yeah. using kind of a, I guess, exposing the absurdity of the situation or whatever. Phantom of Liberty. Right. Oh, right. What did I just call it? The, the Phantom Carriage. Oh, that's, the, <laughs> that's a really part. great movie, too, but, yeah. Um yeah, so the the surrealism is kind of like it kind of organically exists in the vi- environment, and he's just kind of pointing the camera at it. Whereas, I think a lot of surreal films, like it's a very manufactured element to the story. Yeah, yeah. And I think the more organic approach is something I respond to m- more passionately. It's it's almost like there are moments here where it where it's like a a blink and you'll miss it sort of thing. Apart from all that. I really like enjoyed this film as sort of a a very somber portrait of isolation or like traumatic loss. It's interesting that all yeah. the characters that we have some kind of introduction to in the psychiatric hospital seem to be there because of some kind of traumatic memory that's yeah, left them in a catatonic state. I, I was going to say that it was almost like the, everybody there has like post-traumatic stress disorder or something like that but i don't know that it's that specific but it's like francois has never been able to overcome the death of his mother his companion rejection from the navy he has epilepsy so there's another element to that but it seems like his sort of eternal sadness is brought on by that and there's like some other peripheral characters that i remember being introduced in the uh the lunchroom scene yeah the the colonel and yeah, like they seem to all kind of be stuck in this certain period of their life that they can't get out of. And that way it's interesting. I know we talked about this before we got started. It's a pretty simple approach to its treatment of mental illness. Yeah. But I do think George Franju demonstrates that he has a lot of empathy for these characters and their situations. But he's also kind of going to capture the more absurd and maybe grotesque elements of what this environment yeah would create the saw sequence being something that if it wasn't as empathetic as it is like that could be viewed at i think by some people as a very exploitative way to 
evoke horror in this situation, whereas I think it kind of happens more naturally. I like that moment. I think it's it's yeah, pretty it's a, brutal, yeah. and I I like it. But what did you think of the well, movie? Um, well, you know, I love Eyes Without a Face. That's one of my favorite movies. I'd never seen Head Against One. I like I told you before we started recording. I actually thought this was his follow up film to Eyes Without a Face. It was actually his film right before Eyes Without a Face. And when I was talking to you, I mentioned that uh, it, it, it's very unusual for a director of his stature to have a film about mental illness to be less personal than his mad scientist uh, horror film. Mm-hmm. But in George Franju's case, that's the case. I mean, head with head against the wall, he was truly a director for hire. He was brought on to direct the film. As uh, Jean-Pierre Maki, who wrote the script and was also Francois, was originally going to direct the film. And I can't remember. I I know I read it, but what was the reason why he didn't end up doing that? I don't know. I couldn't. I don't. I couldn't find the reason. So I don't know. Um, I, I I guess I I did find a little factoid that uh, apparently that cemetery scene. I don't mm-hmm. know how much of it, but I guess Franju was really sick, and Maki actually shot the burial sequence. Which is interesting in retrospect because yeah. that's actually one of my favorite scenes of the movie. And a lot of it has to do with how much time it dedicates to observing the, the process of lowering a coffin down and burying it and everything. All the Well, just the juxtaposition to how his epileptic friend also killed himself to the hanging of the casket and everything. It's just that is a moment to me that feels so specific it would almost it seems very strange to me that it doesn't come from Franju because of his nonfiction background mm-hmm. where it it that feels like a moment that wasn't scripted probably like the yeah. the amount of time that it sp- spends with that but this was a very personal project for John Pierre Maki mm-hmm. so you know that was more of a like a passion project for him than George Franju at all which like i said is kind of interesting to look at and really my favorite parts of this film were what I believe Franju brought to the film. Like I am actually surprised he didn't do the cemetery scene, but um, a lot of the way that he shot the film, like Francois and his father's house and just the car pulling up to the uh, hospital. Like he did very much shoot those in a horror film way. This after seeing this in eyes without a face, he has a major hard on for like cars, cars, (laughs) cars driving and like, the visual of headlights grazing over like silhouetted trees yeah. at night. Like he loves that image. Yeah. I love it too. I just, well, I've read, I read somewhere that this film is like a dress rehearsal for eyes without a face. I could definitely see that. Yeah. Cause I mean, Pierre Brassor, who's Dr. Val, uh, uh, Varmont, who is the, I guess you could say the evil, uh, psychiatrist is the villainous mad scientist in eyes without a face. And in a way he's a mad scientist in this. You could look at it in a way. I would say that where I got more of a connection was that just his portrayal of the two characters is very similar. Mm -hmm. Like, he's very detached in both films. Yeah, he's very cold. And he's, like, a very physical performer, too. Like, his stature is, like, a big part of, I think, what makes him so intimidating. Um, But it's also interesting to compare the two just because... Both of the sort of, I guess, protagonists of this movie, if you want to call Edith Scobes' character a protagonist in Eyes Without a Face, or she's at least, you know, the the child like Francois Mm -hmm. is, they're both characters that have been repressed in some way by their fathers. 
Yeah, and they're also being detained against their will by their fathers. Right. There's an interesting connection, I guess, between what Franju is saying about maybe, like, parenthood in these sort of... uh, Because they also come from both, like, wealthy upbringings. Yeah, yeah. But in a way, with her father wanting to give her the face transplant, and eyes without a face, and Francois's father forced him into the uh, mental hospital... Both fathers are trying to mold their children into something that they're not. Mm-hmm. I actually thought uh, Edith Skolb's one scene in this film was one of the like more eerie scenes in in Head Against the Wall. Yeah, her singing. Yeah, and it really did put me. I mean, she's so angelic and at the same time very scary. And that's how I feel about her in Eyes Without a Face. Her just her blank face mask. She's very angelic, and yet there's something haunting about her. Yeah, and it's that scene is even weird too, just because like the audio's kind of out of sync. Like her yeah. lips are not exactly like I I don't know if he didn't have the piece of music selected at the time or something, but it what she's singing isn't really what's playing. There's a weird, yeah, it makes like, it gives it like an unearthly quality to it. That, yeah, <laughs> that she doesn't seem of this world. That's a moment where I do feel like it elevates. The entire piece like there are little things like that throughout like just like just like those scenes of watching the two characters ride around on that train yeah like i could have watched that all day like i just yeah there was just something really unusual about the size of that train and the guy driving the train and just well i truly feel that if maki directed this film it would be a fine film but those elements like the motif of the birds which we have that in Eyes Without a Face as well. So that, you know, that's a Franju thing. Mm-hmm. The Edith Skolb singing scene. I think the train stuff would have been different. I mean, I do think, like, the the best elements of this film, other than that cemetery scene, would be gone. And that's why I think this, like, for me, like, the script is the weakest part, because I do think Maki simplifies how to treat the mentally ill. I mean, he obviously saying uh, Varman's way is wrong, and Emery, who's another psychiatrist is right but do you think it's that black and white i do think the portrayal is relatively black and white because how i was even saying earlier i mean they i think um paul morrissey's per uh his portrayal of dr emery i mean he's always smoking a cigarette he always looks cool i mean he they even have him like like this guy's like like ultra cool and barmont is like kind of like a stuck-up older man but also there is the scene with the press that seems to con- suggest that he's also a doctor who's like he, he, cra- likes he craves the... attention yeah. yeah he craves attention yeah no i do agree with you but i felt because barbon's in that scene that the things that he said almost comes across as sour grapes so kind of uh it kind of diffuses emory's clamoring for attention no i i agree like even though i think the scene that they share where they're discussing their conflicting approaches I do think Varmont's everything Varmont says is at least like it's a rational argument. Like yeah, you don't have sure. to agree with it, but it's not like he's not, you know, he's not some like lunatic dictator or something yeah. running this asylum. But I find the Varmont character to be really intriguing, just because he's very ambivalent. I, I find it really difficult to decipher what his motivations are. Yeah, the well, movie. what his motivations was to become a psychiatrist. In- to begin with. I mean, he has no empathy for his patients and he really does all he sees them as is a danger to society. Yeah. Which is weird because he kind of tries to act like he does first. He, you know, he, 
scolds the one orderly for calling them lunatics. But he calls him a lunatic later. But he calls him a lunatic in private to Dr. Emery, so he's not trying to kind of like uh, a public performance in a way. Well, even his, in that scene when he turns to the birds and he claps at the birds and startles them, it almost, he, he seemed to get pleasure out of doing that. Doing, yeah, yeah. One of the scenes, like after, the ep- I'm not going to say his name, so the epileptic inmate, after he kills himself and uh, Varman and Emery discover him, Varman, his reaction is, I've been, I have to be more strict with them. Mm-hmm. It's almost saying, like, even in this regard, when you have Emery saying, oh, you know, you have to be different with him, Varman, Varman is totally, like, ambivalent to everything that's going on around him and goes, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm too, they need more structure. They need to have more rules, like, in that regard. Instead of thinking, like, maybe I have been doing things wrong. <laughs> he just goes, I have to be more steadfast in my beliefs. There was a part of me that, while watching it, I was wondering, uh, because at some point he says that he's been working there for 30 years. Yeah. If, because he's been in this environment so long, he's become desensitized to everything. Yeah, that's Like, he, maybe he first came there with the passion that Emery, I guess, displays, and that's, over time, he's seen all these patients kill themselves and all these things, and he sort of, I guess, lost his love for the job a little bit. But there are, then there are other scenes to me. He really comes off as a villain when he's on screen with Francois. Like Mm -hmm. he sort of serves as his police judge and jury within that hospital. And there's a really weird possessiveness that he has over him because he even denies Emery the opportunity to treat him. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just that the initial examination scene is really came off as confrontational to me because as it sort of unravels, there was this strong sense of contempt that Varmont had almost for like Francois's lifestyle. Yeah. It's it's strange that he doesn't introduce himself and it's really weird. And this is another detail where I feel like this has to be a Franju thing where when he starts examining him, He's using like a full-fledged flashlight. Like it's a big giant flashlight in his yeah. hand. It's almost like he's trying to evoke some kind of a violent response from him or something. Well, it's like if you're interrogating a uh, – if you're a police officer interrogating a suspect, how you shine the light on him. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that same kind of idea. Uh, <clears throat> what I thought was great about that scene that I really liked, and I do believe this was – I don't know if it still is the case, but it was at least the case with mental illness at that time, is that – the person that has you committed doesn't have to prove that you're insane. You have to prove that you're sane. And that's impossible. Because anything you say can be construed as being insane. Mm-hmm. And that's what Varmont was doing to Francois in that, in that scene. Everything he said, Varmont was like, oh, it's this. That's elements of you know this form of insanity. It, this is this. And I, I actually thought that was like the best uh, critique of mental, uh, the mental illness... I'm sorry, mental illness, is that it's impossible to prove that you're sane because anything can be construed as insanity. I think the sedation scene later works well as that because to me that scene was crazy at the end of it when Varmont leaves the room and he says, classical father hatred. Yeah. Well, how could you be committed on the basis of father hatred? Yeah. And and I don't know if that's speaking to the, like, social 
approach at that time or not? Well, there was also, you know? I thought, like a, a form of classism because there was the sort of interrogation between Varman and Francois's father. But whereas everything that Francois said, who has no power and has no money, everything he says is a form of insanity. But everything that Francois's father said to him in regards to how Francois's mother died was all just taken at face value. Oh, that's right. I really like that and, scene. And even though the father was very confrontational, very confrontational with Dr. Vermont, and Francois never really was. Yeah, and I remember when that scene first started and he started questioning them, I started to think that, oh, maybe he's really investigating yeah. this whole thing. But then by the end of it, it's like he's glad <laughs> that it didn't prove to be more scandalous than it was. He's like, I'm really glad, happy for you. Yeah. It subverts the expectation, and it makes me believe that Varmont will believe anything that will support Francois remaining in the hospital yeah, because crazy. that's what he wants, you know. Like, yeah. And then even that sedation scene too. He, to me, Varmont kind of comes off as like his his father. It's a weird scene because he puts him to sleep, but he keeps ordering him mm-hmm. even after he's as- asleep. Well, that whole that whole scene, even um, with him putting him to sleep, evoked for me like images of like a father tucking his child into bed. But there was like a like a sinister element to it. Well, it even has like that sort of nursery lullaby score going yeah. on underneath it the whole time. Yeah, I, I, Pierre Brasseur is is really really good. In the yeah, movie. I think Jean Pierre Maki is really good as well. Jean Pierre Maki is interesting just because he. There were moments where he really came off as like a Brisson character to me mm-hmm. just because his he's so sort of um, a blank canvas in the movie. And I think it's yeah, what, I agree. what allows the viewer to enter the film on their own. There's a that's that's kind of funny how you mentioned Brisson, because there were times where I felt this film reminded me of a man escaped more than any other like kind of escape film. Mm hmm there were moments where I kind of like felt that kind of like need for freedom that I think the, the character in man, a man escaped has. Yeah. Well, I, I do think there are moments here that are really like anxiety inducing and it's just yeah. because of the absurdity of the situation to begin with, sort of the, the, the fact that he's here, but yeah, I, I think he, there's like a, Francois is just an interesting character because there seems to be like a, a naiveness that maybe justifies because it really to me when I f- was f- watching it at the beginning, I was very surprised by sort of the lack of emotional response when he is in the asylum. He has moments where he externalizes th- this feeling, but he feels like it's not some. He doesn't fully understand his surroundings or something. Um, well, you know, the, it was nice in a film like this where we never really had a scene where Francois like was screaming, I've got to get out of here. Something like that. I mean, we never had that. And uh, I think that makes for a better Francois character. I throughout the film, even though I felt he wasn't insane and didn't need, shouldn't necessarily be in the asylum. He did need medical help, psychiatric help to deal with his feelings about what happened to his mother. I mean, that has haunted his life. There was a moment that really stuck with me near the beginning when he does steal the money from his father and he finds the gun and he turns the barrel around so that it's pointing at his face. Mm -hmm. And 
I just found it like very striking as if in that moment he's like contemplating that's exactly what I thought yeah, suicide like, and yeah. then I wondered if you know like if that was it was just a further like justification of how sort of traumatized he's been by this loss that really like because even the the burning of the paper that gets him in this trouble is such a it's such a childish minute thing it's like something a small child would but the fact that it's it is jeopardizing his father's reputation and that because his father is a wealthy like high standing lawyer. lawyer yeah that uh, any kind of scandal is more worrisome to him than his son what also shows that his father broke a rule because he even said those are law papers you own i'm not supposed to bring home with me it would have exposed the fact that he doesn't follow the rules he's supposed to follow and that would be scandalous for a wealthy lawyer now um franju georgie georgie his biggest influence were the french serial like adventure slash horror serials like La Vampire and Phantomus and Judex and everything. Uh, the guy that plays Francois' father, Jean Galland, is Phantomus in the original Phantomus. I find that very... You know he went out of his way to get that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just love that little thing about him, about Franju and his his love of you know the, the, the fantastic that he places him in the movie. I just wanted to point that out. Well, I, I even think in his approach to storytelling is not that far removed from those types of serials. Anyway, like there's a pulpy quality. Oh, there to is these, these movies that you don't find, I guess in French film at this time, you know? No, I mean, like I've mentioned before, cause I know I've mentioned to you that John Rowland was heavily influenced by John, uh, by uh, George Franju. And I think you can see it in eyes, eyes without a face, but I think you can see it in head against the wall in that I felt a lot of uh, John Rowland's film, Night of the Hunted, reminded me of certain elements of Head Against the Wall. That one has elements of being in kind of like a mental hospital sort of thing. Just the way that Rowland does everything is so reminiscent to me of Franju's style. That I love, I, I kind of think that's a neat connection, that you have a filmmaker in France during the new wave that is so tied to, like, pulpy genre kind of things. Well, the interesting about Franju is that he was completely anti-New Wave, um, from what I've read. He he admired Godard, mostly because Godard, like, Godard was Godard, like there was nobody else like Godard. Yeah. He was more... The other thing that's important to, to mention is that at the time of this movie, Georges Franju is 50 years old. So mm -hmm. he's a lot older than all of these other filmmakers that are kind of jump-starting, like the Truffauts, the Godards, the Rivette. I guess Louis Malle would have been not that yeah, far yeah. from here either. Yeah, Louis Malle. It seemed to me, from what I gathered, he was more about honoring and respecting, I guess, the retaining, I guess, some of the more old-fashioned approaches. I think that says a lot about why he's not held up as a more important figure in film. I mean, I haven't seen his later films, so I don't changing, know. Though. I do think that's changing. Mm -hmm. I think with Criterion, when they released Eyes Without Out of Face originally, I think it brought more attention to him. And now, you know, they've recently released Jude. I, I will say that while he's not, his place in history isn't as uh, 
esteemed as other film filmmakers that were making films at the same time as him. But I, I do think a lot of that just generally like people coming to know him and respect him and say, oh, yeah, I love George Franju. A lot of that has to do with the Internet. Yeah. I think it's harder for filmmakers of certain caliber to kind of get lost at this point. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's true. And it just makes it so much easier to get a hold of. And I, I'm not saying that's a bad thing or anything. I'm just, yeah. you know, saying that it's just, I, I think in like 1970 or whatever, or in the 80s, I, I'm, I, I don't know how popular a name Georges Franju was among art house audiences. I don't know if it would have meant anything because Eyes Without a Face, when it was released in the U.S., was released to drive-ins. Oh, really? It was a... It was released as The Horror Chamber of Dr. Faustus. And it was on a double feature with uh, a film called The Master, which is another mad scientist movie. Mm -hmm. At that time, what's funny, because, you know, you can look at Mary Bava as another one that's like this. Although Bava stayed strictly in horror, pretty much. I mean, he did make some, like, westerns and stuff, but primarily horror. Is His films came out in drive-ins and stuff at the time. And now he's looked at a lot differently than he probably would have been at the time. Uh, I think Franju probably would have been, was the same. I really don't know if any of his other movies necessarily were released in the U.S. I know this one was. Head Against the Wall was. I mean, Jude A. may have been, but again, that's a crime film. So again, that's a very, gen very genre-heavy film. That it wouldn't surprise me if it was released over here in the U.S., that it could have been released to drive-ins or matinees or something. Yeah, and I, I definitely think he has like very staunch social critiques that he's making and and saying. Uh, but I think his films can just be enjoyed as sort of pure genre exercises. One thing I did want to mention that watching this, I felt it was very reminiscent of Kafka's work to a certain extent as well. Mm -hmm. You mentioned A Man Escape, but I was thinking a lot about The Trial and Metamorphosis, where you sort of have this very obscure social force impending all of this restriction upon a character who really is just at a complete loss. Uh, it, it is important to note that the uh, cinematographer, Eugene, I'm going to butcher this. Uh, okay, that's all right. Schuf, Schuftan, I think he's German, so that's probably not right, is also photographed both Metropolis and oh, yeah. Abel Gantz's Napoleon. Napoleon, yeah. People on Sunday. I, I, I know I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, but D. Nieblungen, that other Fritz Lang movie, you know, the one that's really long. Oh, I mean, yes, the... Yeah. They could always be any Fritz Lang movie. The German really. epic, yeah. Yeah. I watched um, both those films earlier this year. Yeah, I haven't seen those yet. I, um, you liked the first part, but not as, the second one as much. Yeah, no, they, 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 have in, they have their own inherent problems with how they portray women and things like that. They're pretty misogynistic. Well, Which I, mean, I, I know you have to just kind of right, accept. I mean, these were like but... 100 years ago. Uh, now, I was looking further down at his uh, filmography, the cinematographer. He did Eyes Without a Face as well, and then afterwards he did The Hustler. I find that very surprising that he would make that big of a change like that. So, yeah, I mean, that was his film right after Eyes Without a Face was The Hustler. And, I mean, Eyes Without a Face and this film as well, I mean, are beautifully shot. I don't think it's out of the question for someone like, you know, Robert Rosen or Paul Newman or something to have seen either one of these films and Jackie Gleason even. 
<laughs> yeah, the Gleason. I don't know about Gleason. I don't know how much you would have been into it, but uh, you would have saw the art in both of these films that maybe at the time other people may not have. Yeah, well, one of the best visual moments is at the end with the staircase and just yeah. how moody and shadowy it is and then the flip oh, yeah. of the switch. It's great, yeah. I, one thing I did really like about it was uh, the hospital is sort of – it's weird. Like it's its own society because it's off in this mm-hmm. like obscure – so you it's weird because it, you have these two doctors who have two conflicting ideas. It's almost like two political parties. And they're in two different buildings. You have a transportation system with train. It has it, – it seemed like it had its own irrigation system. Yeah. So it's just weird. There were lots of – like I think it does a really nice job of exploring the entire space that the story is taking place on. And what I what what I like speaking of that is that you do the film does explore enough where you see a lot of a lot of what you said, but it's never truly explained. Mm-hmm. Even though they're in different buildings and they have conflicting ideas, are they under the same management or are they just happen to be located next to each other? I mean, you never truly learn any of this, which I think is important because the inmates would never really know. Mm-hmm. Like they would understand that there, there's these two doctors. They both have their own buildings. They have conflicting ideals, but you don't know the more intricate dealings between the two of them, and really never really know the intricate dealings of the whole place. You just see certain things. There's even that in, that introduction that there's a uh, a woman's ward. Yeah, because we as see well. the well. One we know Edith Scobes there, but we also see the women outside at one point behind a fence. Yeah, there's that really... Like, that, again, that's another moment where I feel like that's got to be a Franju thing, where it's just oh, like yeah. you have this woman, like, eerily gazing at him, and it seems very, like, sexual. Yeah, you thought... Like, I know I thought there was going to be more to it, and that's all there was, and yeah, no, I agree with you. It was... There was an eeriness to it, and... Yeah, no. There's a lot of fleeting moments. Like, I, one of my favorite scenes is the is the bar located on the boat yeah oh i know that was (laughs) and you've got this whole thing where the girl swims up onto the boat and it's somebody he's clearly had some kind of a relationship with and then he goes down in there and it's this weird like collection of people there's the lesbians yeah down there which i thought was i know france is much more liberal in their leanings but well, the, i thought that was unusual to see the, yeah. the people that were dancing were dancing more in a like a flapper style yeah right <laughs> and then he goes to get the money from the young man and the young man sitting there with a much older woman it, it yeah. felt just very like and there, again there's like no real explanation for it it's just like well, well i swear i saw people with real live instruments yeah yeah i think but we so. learned that the music isn't live music it's a record Right, right. <laughs> so yeah, that whole scene was very like I'm not for certain what's going on in this scene or where this is. Well, I thought the um the game that they were watching at the casino with the the cue ball. Oh yeah, that's great too. I thought that was like an insane game, and the way that these people were just like transfixed on it. Well, the camera's like, transfixed on it. It just sits there forever yeah. and watches that ball go around and around and around. Yeah. I, I think that scene to me, like, it seemed to be suggesting that life in a mental hospital is not that much different from life in a patriarchal society or something. Because all yeah. of them were very zombie-like, just like a oh, lot yeah, of these patients Oh, yeah, they were just, like, patients in a trance. Are. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was thinking they're just as 
crazy, insane, whatever you want to call it, as any of anyone that's in the asylum. As we're talking about these individual scenes, it does make me think that there are a lot of moments and locations and little scenes where it's like, I want like a whole movie of this almost. I want a whole movie on that boat. Um, Oh yeah, I could. I I could do a whole movie in that billiard hall. Like it, it was such a strange sort of design space. Um, Because even like you were saying with the cue ball, it's like they're watching a football game or something. I mean, they're not expressing anything, but that's such a weird sort of setup to have this cue ball at the center of the room with all these like uh, bleachers or what they're not bleachers, but that's what I'm going to call them. No, but it's set up like bleachers. I mean, it is state, it is stadium seating. Yeah. It's set up. Yeah. I've never seen a game like that either. And I don't know if that's a real game or if it's one of the, just like he was trying to think of like some insane game. Right. (laughs) They have in the film because you've got a guy with a cue stick. He hits a cue ball. It bounces off one of the uh, barrier. I don't know. I don't know enough about what the parts of the billiard table are, but like the barrier of it. And it goes down into this like little, almost like lane kind of thing and starts spinning around <laughs> this kind of like roulette wheel kind of thing. And it was one of the weirder games I've ever seen. I didn't know what was going on with the well, game. Well, then it's even more like frustrating because when it finally stops, nobody says it. like, there's no expression. Oh, yeah, there's no sound. Yeah. It's all just dead. It's like okay, it it landed on two. All right, next next time. Like I, it was yeah. You would expect bizarre. like people were gambling on this game. You would have heard some cheers of like, oh, that's my number or something. But no, it was nothing. No emotion whatsoever. It's almost like they're just there to watch this ball circle around and around. Well, that even makes me think of the opening of the movie with the title sequence with him practicing the motocross, like. The fact that he's a motocross racer, like, is just something that's so odd to me as well. And that whole scene is strange. It's like, here's this, like, great big... And as I was thinking about it again, uh, I've seen this in other French films, but it's it's very unusual to me because you have these suburban spaces, and then right behind this these streets, you have these big, vast, like, untouched, untamed land. I remember in... Jacques Tati's Mon Oncle, there's a similar scene and you have like guys serving donuts out in this field just kind of randomly to children. But it just it was very odd to me that you see all these suburban homes in the horizon. It seems like he's got his own like man-made motocross track. Yeah. And then at the end of the scene, there's like some kid in the middle of it that he almost runs over. Well, the other thing is um the female, uh his kind of his love interest in the film is there. But we, I don't know how she got there. Her introduction is very abrupt. It's just, yeah, because he, dri- he drives her back on the motorcycle and he didn't know she was there. Mm-hmm. So she just kind of appears out in this field. Which I guess, I, I don't know, there's maybe an element if you watch this a certain way where you could suggest that maybe like all of this is inside the character's head or something like I, I, I yeah, guess uh, there there aren't enough scenes that would support that because there's lots I mean, of stuff she is a savior figure for him she was just too late to come on the scene to save him right mm-hmm. other element of George Franju that I love leather loves leather yeah he does give him a couple more years he probably would have made Scorpio Rising before Kevin he probably would have well <laughs> Seeing uh, Francois in his leather gear riding that motorcycle made me think of Milan the Leather Boy, which is a 
very, very obscure singer-songwriter from the 60s. Uh-huh. He released a few... I mean, a, he's dead. He died in a motorcycle crash. He released a few songs that uh, were ultimately collected on a, a compilation called Hellbent for Leather, which collects all of everything he ever recorded. Mm-hmm. And that's what it made me think of. I was like, oh, man, he should, you know... This is predates Milan, but man, if he was playing Milan the Leather Boy, this would work. <laughs> so, anything else to add, or do you want to? How many jive turkeys will you be giving? Well, I initially gave it four, but after us talking about it, I'm probably when I watch it again, I'll appreciate it more mm-hmm. the second time because uh, there actually was a lot that I really did like about the film. I'm going with four with the idea that it might jump up to. Four and a half, maybe five in the future. Okay. Well, I'm going to give it four and a half. Now, it's it's safe to assume that you still like Eyes Without a Face more. Yeah, Eyes, I think Eyes Without a Face is better. I think Franju is more is more interested in the story for Eyes Without a Face than he is with Head Against the Wall. Mm-hmm. And I do see, I do when I read how this could be looked at as a dress rehearsal for Eyes Without a Face, I do agree with that. And I can see that he became more maybe... Um, refined in his style of nonfiction by the time he did the second film. There's also elements of Eyes Without a Face that, I mean, are just, like, so poetic and haunting. The ending, you know, with her and the birds. Yeah. I mean, that's the one. That's just, like, an amazing image. Well, really, any time Edith Scobe is, like, just walking around, yeah, it's yeah. pretty amazing. Oh, and that, like, that montage scene of her face deteriorating after yeah. he came mm-hmm. this. I mean, that that is such a an amazing sequence. And it's a sequence that most people, I don't, I, you, it doesn't matter how great of a filmmaker you are, I don't even know if most filmmakers would have thought to have such a kind of like minimalist sequence of a deteriorating face like you did. Like kind of like the time-lapse photography. I right. mean, it's, I mean, it's so, I think, ingenious. I mean, and he infuses like a very cold medical element into a mad scientist film that I think is very interesting. So we received an email that you're going to read. Yeah. All right. Are you ready? I'm ready. Hi, Zach and Andy. I just started listening to the podcast after discovering your review of Pretty Maids All in a Row, which is one of my favorite films. Another exploitation film I'd highly recommend for you both to check out is Scream for Help, directed by Michael Winner. It's about a teenage sleuth who loses her virginity in a classically sleazy fashion. It's one of the most bizarre films I've ever seen, and would love to hear you guys talk about it sometime on the show. Which we might have to. I'm a Michael Winter fan, so. Yeah, I actually looked this movie up, and uh, it looks pretty intriguing. Okay, so we might have to. I'm sure it's disgusting, but it's disgusting for all the all the good reasons. Yeah, yeah. So, question one. I apologize if you've already talked about this, but after hearing you talk about some of your favorite topics and themes in movies, I started thinking about the reverse. What are some of your least favorite films? They can be films that people consider great or just movies that you find offensive or just naturally dislikable. I know you both have talked about a little bit about A Clockwork Orange being a film that bothers you, but I don't think that exactly qualifies. And then he lists some of his least favorite films and some of more plump fiction, which is a parody of Pulp Fiction, I remember that. Halloween 2 remake, Face Off, The Big Chill, Irreversible, Baby Doll, I don't like Baby Doll either, Lost Highway, Funny Games, Caddyshack, Enter the Dragon, Religious, The Iguana with the Tongue of Fire, Tenebrae, Sisters of Death, Giallo, Jade, The Trial of Billy Jack, 
The Darjeeling Limited, the remake of Conan the Barbarian, which is awful, and Exorcist 2. But yeah, there are actually some of the films on him on his uh, least favorite. I do, I do, I do really like Tenebrae. Yeah, I, I don't. It's one of my least favorite Argento okay. movies. Um, I like Caddyshack. I think that movie's pretty funny. I will say with Tenebrae though, he doesn't specify, but he could have seen a really chopped cut of it. That's possible, but I think he's probably seen it. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, probably because he's seen that Iguana movie. Yeah. So. Yeah. So yeah, what are your some of, what are some of your least favorite films, Zach? Because you said you you have a list. I uh, we got this email a while ago. So and really, when we read it, uh, I didn't. It was something. It's not something I really think about much at all. Like what films? What films do I really not like? Like what would be my least favorite film? So I actually kind of thought about it, and uh, I have a pretty comprehensive list. Uh, there's quite a I'm few. Dying to, I'm dying to hear it. I'm going to read through them, and I, I'm sure there's a couple that will jump out that you're going to attack me for, but starting with uh, The Longest Day, which is the World War II epic, Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers, Okay. Oliver you know, Stone's like The Doors, Okay. Oliver Stone's Wall Street. <laughs> okay. You just don't like Oliver Stone. No, that's it. You uh, like JFK, though, right? I like JFK. That's, uh, that's the best Oliver Stone movie. Okay. Wes Craven's Last House on the Left. Okay. Basic Instinct. Oh, that's a good movie. Lust for Life, which is the Van Gogh biopic really? with you Kurt Russell. Oh, God. No, I always kind of enjoyed that movie. Dull. Uh, Tim and Eric's Billion Dollar Movie. Oh, I don't blame you for that one. I hate Tim and Eric. I don't think I I've ever too. expressed my pat dis my passionate hate for them, but I really dislike Tim and Eric. Yeah, I do too. Uh, Michael Haneke's Benny's Video. I love Michael Haneke, Michael Haneke, but that movie's gross. Uh, the Toy with Richard Pryor and Jackie Gleason, <laughs> one of the most racist movies ever. It's terrible. Uh, the Air Up There with Kevin Bacon. Have you ever seen that? The basketball movie? I, no, but I remember it. Uh, American History X. Full Metal Jacket. Oh, good, okay. Reservoir Dogs. I don't know if I would say it's one of the worst. I mean, it's way overrated. Yeah, but... let me let me say this. I'm not saying that these are the worst films. I'm just saying these right, are films I don't like. Yeah. Right, yeah. But Reservoir Dogs is so overrated. A Bridge Too Far, A Beautiful Mind, Sucker Punch, and I, I know I'm going to get nailed for these next two because these are definitely the two most controversial ones. Fellini's Eight and a Half <laughs> and Fellini's La Dolce Vita. I don't think you should necessarily get criticized for those because I do think like – Certain elements of Fellini is, I think he's like very much like Godard, which later um, in this letter, in the second part of the letter, he says that he doesn't like Godard. And I, you know, Godard, some people like him, some people hate him. <coughs> Excuse me. And I think Fellini's the same way. Like, I've never truly gotten into Fellini. I'll always try again, but it's something that's never really stuck out to me, like, of what I've seen that I've loved. I don't hate or dislike all of Fellini's films. There are films of his that I like. Well, yeah. But there's something about him making movies about a director struggling to make a movie that kind of just drives me insane. Like, I don't know what it is. It just <laughs> – like, that storyline is just so uninteresting to me. Yeah. And I don't even particularly care that much for how he visualizes it. I don't know how well I would be able to justify him. I, I'm sure some of my dislike for Eight and a Half comes from, like – 
people talking about how important of a movie it is, and I don't mm-hmm. necessarily completely understand that. But uh, Fight Club might be controversial. Okay. I don't. That's like a real overrated movie. I like Fight Club. And when I was young, when it came out, it came out in like '99, so I was of the right age when that movie came out. I really loved it. Every time I see it, the older I get, I find less and less stuff to identify with mm-hmm. with it. So it's no longer like a personal film for me. It's now just a film that yeah I like, but it's like way overrated. It is nowhere near near like close to David Fincher's best movie. I think for me, this is completely unfair to the film, but part of the culture. <laughs> That yeah. surrounds Fight Club is something that doesn't help me liking Fight Club anymore, basically. Right, yeah. Which is not fair to the movie, but I can't help No, that, but it's you know. the same thing that I have with The Clockwork Orange. Exactly. It's like, it seems like, I think the message that the film is trying to portray, it may not be portraying it in the best way possible, but I think a lot of the people that watch the movie don't understand the ultimate message, and I think that's kind of true for Clockwork Orange as well. Like, I don't know... If He's doing the message quite correctly, and thus people just go, ooh, this movie's cool. Okay, Eddie Murphy's Norbit. <laughs> Woody Allen's Celebrity. It's really the okay. only Woody Allen movie that I really dislike. Um, Michael Mann's Ali biopic. Hollow Man, a little too rapey for my, my taste. Uh, the Cell. Okay. It's with Jennifer yeah, Lopez. Yeah, I know what it is. Yeah, that's... Uh, closer. What's that? Oh, I hate closer. Yeah, with uh, Clive Owen and yeah, uh, Ridley Scott's Black Rain, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. I, I yeah. love the first and the third film. I do not like the second film. Tim Burton, Sleepy Hollow, Donnie Brasco. <laughs> okay. Jerry Maguire. I never seen hate Jerry Maguire. Jerry Maguire. I think the only Cameron Crowe film I've ever seen is um. Elizabeth Town. Oh, wait. Okay, because there's a second part of this question we haven't read yeah. yet, and anything, anybody that was named in the second question, I didn't include any other, and I completely... Oh, you screwed up. You threw a camera pro movie in yeah, there. Yeah, I... Yeah, okay. Anyway. Uh, Bull Durham. <laughs> okay. Moonraker. The Omen. Oh, The Omen's awful. Uh, Shampoo with Warren Beatty, the unfunniest <laughs> funny movie ever. How the West Was Won, uh, Mamma Mia. <laughs> uh, Die Hard 2? Oh, you don't like Die Hard 2? No, and Live Free or Die Hard. I haven't seen A Good Day to Die Hard, so. Okay, Good Day to Die Hard. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm putting my list right now. Good Day to Die Hard is one of them. Requiem for a Dream, The Graduate. Mr. Nobody with Jared Leto. Breathless, Jean-Luc Godard's movie. Oh, wow. And uh, finally, anything generally that stars Brendan Fraser. <laughs> Not a Brendan Especially Fraser guy. Airheads. So those are my least favorite films. All right. Wow, you had a big list. I actually cut it down. I had more, but I removed some because I was just like, this is too big. I don't need all this. I don't this. Didn't nearly have as uh, many because I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head. I didn't. I didn't sit down and go, Ooh, what are the movies I really hate? So for me, for movies I really hate, well, like I said, I'm putting that fourth Die Hard on there. Okay. And I'm going to go ahead and say the third one as well. Not the third one, the, four, the fourth and fifth Die Hards, the two most recent ones, I'm putting on there. The fifth one because it is like just like god awful. And the fourth one 
because it allowed the fifth one to be made. If that one had failed, they might have gone back to their original style for the fifth, because they still would have made a fifth one. But they might have gone back to go, oh, we have to make Die Hard movies like Die Hard movies. Well, hopefully that's what they'll do with the sixth film, because I don't, I don't think the fifth film did well, right? No, it didn't. That's what Bruce Willis is claiming, that they're going back to the, back to the original style, but, you know, I'll believe when I see it. Bruce Willis is such a turd these days. Uh, Paul Haggis' Crash, which is probably, I think, the worst movie ever made. I mean, they completely simplify racism, and I think ultimately make a racist film. No, I, yeah, I agree. So, I mean, that movie is awful. And the fact that people said it was good at the time, like, blows my mind. Forrest Gump would be one of them. Again, just like a lot of Robert Zemeckis' movies, there's problems with racism in the film, and, I mean, it's got such a right-wing bent to it that it's, like, hard to watch. I mean, it's like propaganda. The second Pirates of the Caribbean movie, whatever the hell that one was called. I haven't seen the fourth one, so I can't comment on that one. And the third Dead, one, I just Dead Man's like, yeah. Chest, right? I don't, yeah, I don't I don't remember much of the third one, but man, I just remember hating the second one with a passion while I was watching it. I was bored out of my mind. I mean, this movie's like nearly three hours long, just one like repetitive action sequence after another. You're hating on my guy, Gore Verbinski. I love him. I actually like all the three Pirates films, and oh I really God. like the third one because of how incoherent it is. It's a really strange movie. Uh, Iron Man 2 is just like... a a horrendously bad movie. I was waiting for the Marvel the Marvel shots. Yeah, that one is horrendously bad. That may be the only one where I would that I think is like amongst the worst films I've ever seen. I mean, they've made a bunch of bad movies. But that's the only one that's like embarrassingly bad. Yeah, well a lot of them are just kind of like too mediocre to really have any real passionate right. opinion towards. But it's with Iron Man too, you could see where the machine was getting in the way of what John Farber wanted to do. And you can see that's the one where any semblance of a director's personal touch on a film or on the story of a Marvel thing was out the window, with, starting with Iron Man 2. You saw that, okay, whatever, what, no matter what director they get for these films, it doesn't matter, they're just going to follow the script that Marvel gives them. And, what I, and I don't mean like the script for the film, but I mean the script on how to make a Marvel film. And anything about that could, could possibly highlight a hero, one of the, the superheroes in, at least not negative light, but questionable light, show their flaws, i.e. Robert Downey Jr.'s uh, Tony Stark being an alcoholic, will be gone. Like, they touch on the fact that he drinks too much in this, in this one, but it's completely ignored in everything since then. Tony Stark drinks too much in the first one, really drinks too much in the second one, but in Iron Man 3 and the Avengers, it's never mentioned. Then you see him drinking, so it's not like he's gone to rehab or anything since then. No, he still drinks, it's just not a problem anymore, I guess. Well, he's a functioning for, alcoholic. Yeah, for certain how that works. But I remember after the first Iron Man came out, and it was, you know, the the surprise massive hit, Farva was saying, oh, he's working up to Demon in the Bottle. And I think once it became that massive, massive hit, Marvel Studios, and then later Disney said, we're not going to have our character ruin his life from being an alcoholic. He's not going to have any faults whatsoever. <laughs> in our Marvel films, we don't want heroes with faults. We don't want interesting heroes. We want everyone to be absolutely perfect in every way. Well, I, I didn't know that, and that almost, if if Favreau had, like, plotted that out ahead of time, it almost 
makes sense why you then would cast Robert Downey Jr. to play that character. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think you can see elements of that's where he was going, or at least that's what the initial, where he, initially where he was going with Iron Man 2. But then I think you can also see where Marvel was coming and stepping in and saying, no, we're not going to do that anymore. Mm. And so it's kind of like a film that kind of fights with itself. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> So uh, that's another movie I truly hate is Iron Man 2. I'm trying to think of some other ones that I really, really hate. Closer, which you mentioned. And it's one of the few movies where I've watched... Crash is another one, but a movie where I actually watched it and I was getting mad while I was watching it. And everyone is so hateable in that movie. They're four characters. Man, are they all hateable. That I don't even care about. It's just... No, no. There's a, there's a difference. Like in There Will Be Blood, none of the characters are likable, but that's part of the film. I don't think they were deliberately making four hateable characters and closer. I just think the the person that wrote it, Mike Nichols, is so clueless on how real people are that they develop these characters that are supposed to be, I think, in some regard likable, or at least some of them are, and you just hate them. Yeah. Like, if I knew these people in real life, I'd hate this, this motherfucker. I think I've said this to you before. I hate the scene where Clive Owen is like, did you fuck him? <laughs> like, and the Oh, that scene, but it was the scene where he goes to see Natalie Portman at the strip club. Yeah, yeah, and that's And says bad. something like, your pussy smells wonderful, or something like that. Nobody talks like that, <laughs> yeah. you know? That's what, like, a screenwriter who thinks they're writing, like, natural dialogue. Well, I would actually, I just prefer, their, like, it would be better if it was just, like, a porno film. Like, then I'd be like, this is well, a pretty good okay. porno film. This is, yeah, this then, is then high production okay. value. Yeah, then it'd be okay. All the lines in Closer, and the characters in Closer, remind me of, like I said, some a, a screenwriter that thinks, oh, I write really natural dialogue, and I really write realistic people, but has absolutely no clue about how people actually speak to each other, have no clue about how people actually interact with each other. He just thinks he does. And speaking of Mike Nichols, The Graduate is one of them. I mean, I think everyone that says that movie is great has to sit down and watch it again. And then take a psych, e- psych evaluation <laughs> test to find out why they think that movie is great. Because if they're identifying with Benjamin Braddock, then they're stalkers. They're creepy stalkers, and if they identify with Mrs. Robinson, then they identify with, like, a sociopath. I mean, everything about that movie, it's like, again, I don't know if Mike Nichols has never been around a real person in his life. Well, that wasn't written by him. That was written by... No, but uh, he directed, and he didn't write Closer either, but he directed them. Yes. So he's directing how these people are doing their performances. And Prince of Persia. <laughs> and Prince of Persia. Yeah, didn't he direct Prince of Persia? I don't think so. I think Mike Newell, maybe? Yes, yeah, never mind. Okay, I'm an idiot. He directed Donnie Brasco, Mike Newell. There's a Harry Potter film, because they all blend together except for the Alfonso Cuaron one. Yeah, Goblet of Fire. Yeah, there's a Harry Potter film that it may be the fifth one or the fourth one or something that, wow, I was like, this is insanely bad. But they all kind of bleed together, so I can't really remember which one's which. But man, there's one of them that's awful. Oh, uh, you know, okay, another one, Talladega Nights. Mm-hmm. And you know, I do really like Anchorman. You love it. And I do like uh, Step Brothers and the other guys, because they're really weird, too. But Talladega Nights is how I feel about Iron Man 2, in a way. In that all of the weird strangeness of Anchorman that Will Ferrell and Adam McKay put into that they eliminated the, the strange part and they just made it dumb as opposed to like you know, like 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 a dotist statement 
They just made it dumb and accessible to the widest audience they could. And they took out what I feel is the best part of Anchorman <clears throat> is this kind of sense of anarchy. It reminds me, in a way, of, of a modern Marx Brothers movie. The other thing about Talladega Nights is it's not that dissimilar to Fight Club. It's all of the... Oh, yeah. It's everything that it spawned, like the baby Jesus stuff. Yeah. Like, I hated that movie for all the... Everybody talking like that for, like, a year. It's just terrible. They compromised everything that they had with Anchorman for this film. And I think it completely ruins what whatever could have been on their critique of you know, the NASCAR audience or the NASCAR whatever. And it, instead it becomes almost like a celebration of it. Mm -hmm. The Black Dahlia would be one of them. Brian De Palma. And you, know, and you know I'm a De Palma fan. But it was like a parody of a De Palma movie. Like we were talking about Sin City, the second Sin City, which, hell, okay, I'll put that one on there too. Because um, I, I saw that and I was telling telling you how it's almost like it's it's... Frank Miller became a parody of himself in comics form, and he's now doing that in film as well. I think that might have happened with the spirit, though. Yeah, I agree. It probably did with the spirit as well. I didn't completely write off the spirit like everyone else did. No, I didn't hate it like most people did, but it is like a parody of himself. And what's and what's sad is I think I don't know if you've read any of the old Will Eisner spirits from the like 30s and 40s, well, more 40s, but I mean they're great. And I think there would have been a really great film that you could have done out of it. But Frank Miller just, he's just ignored it. He's got, like, I'll put the characters in it, but they're not going to be what they are. They're going to be Frank Millerized. The city. It yeah. sleeps. It eats. It shits. <laughs> yeah, and it's just, you know, it doesn't fit. It doesn't feel right. And I think De Palma suffers from the same thing, is that everyone has such, like, kind of, like, a stereotypical idea of what a De Palma film is. That I think now when he makes a movie... He feels that he has to hit all those things, but he has to be, like, wilder and crazier. So people won't go, oh, yeah, he's just did what he did in, like, Body Devil, but Body Devil's better. Or Blowout's better. Or, you know, Dress to Kill's better. So he's got to be, like, even more crazy. And it becomes, like I said, like, self-parody. Sure. <laughs> well, I know you don't like the Palma, but I do. Yeah. <laughs> the Expendable series, I've only seen the first two. I hate those movies, and I think part of the reason is I remember I was very excited about the first one because I really liked the fourth Rambo film because I like how essentially he made like some sort of like bloody comedy with, with the fourth one. Yeah, I love that movie, and I actually love Rocky Balboa. I like well. Rocky Balboa too, but Rocky Balboa I think fits with the first one. But Rambo, I mean, it's like he made a instead of making a Gonzo porno film, he made like a Gonzo <laughs> action film. He made a modern day exploitation film with. Like a true modern day exploitation film, not a Robert Rodriguez or a Quentin Tarantino. He made a real exploitation film. So the Expendables, I was hoping like, oh, it's going to be more of the same, and it's not. He makes such a boring, conventional. I mean, I don't know how you get as many guys as he got. He's got himself. He's got Arnold. He's got Dolph. He's got Steve Austin. I mean, he's got all these great guys, and he does nothing with them. No one's fun. Everyone's bo looks bored. They're all boring. The action scenes are bad. The dialogue isn't as fun as it should be. It's so somber. Like, when you're seeing a movie with... If I'm going to a movie theater to see a movie in the 2000s with Dolph Lundgren in it, he better be saying something stupid that I laugh at. And it's not, that's just not the case. There's, like, the, the film has no... There's nothing fun about those films. 
Eh, I I like the first movie. I I didn't like the the second film. I wanted more Commando. Well, that I I won't disagree with. I mean, it's these do seem like the perfect films to bring back Bennett. <laughs> that's what I want, and that's what I wanted, and that's not what he gave. And I just think that's what you should have given with these films, not because that's what some people would have expected, but because. Really, I mean, a lot of these guys are very limited in their talent to begin with, and I think that's what they do best. Mm-hmm. We should start an internet petition, bring back Bennett. Oh, yeah. Commando 2, the way it, sh- the way it should be. Oh, Conan the Barbarian. He mentioned Conan the Barbarian remake. I'll mention it, too. I was really excited about that movie. I love the original Conan the Barbarian, and I like Conan the Barbarian character. Man, was that movie horrible. They were like, oh, let's make a Conan the Barbarian movie. But everything that makes Conan the Barbarian, Conan the Barbarian, let's not have him do it. Let's not make him look like a caveman. Let's make him handsome. Let's make him not be a barbarian. And this one, no, he's he smiles and he kind of like, you know, will cut a joke here and there. He just won't kill you without, the, without any thought put into it. He's not a barbarian then, you know? He's just Conan the guy. No studio has the nerve to make a movie, an expensive movie, where the hero is an anti-hero today, to where he may not be the best person around. You know in an Escape from New York remake, I bet you Snake Plissken is framed for his crime. I just cannot see a studio making a big-budget movie, possible blockbuster, possible franchise, where the hero is, is actually a criminal. I bet you he's not a criminal, and I bet you if he saves the president in this one, the president's not a villain. He's a good guy. Everything that John Carpenter made about that original one will not be like it is in the remake. Okay, so you want to move on to the second part of the question? Gone with the Wind. There's another movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. I hate that movie. Mm -hmm. So, question part two. In addition to the first question, are there any directors who have an entire filmography that you dislike? Personally, four come to mind. Peter Greenway, John Luke Godard, Philip Noyce. Is that how you say his name? Noyce? Yeah. It? It's Noyce. Noyce. And Lamberta, Lamberto Bava. And it says, look forward to checking out the back catalog of episodes. Thanks. Chris from Oregon. Okay, so he he hates Peter Greenway, John Luke Godard, Philip Noyce, and Lamberto Bava. First off, I don't agree with Greenway or Godard. And Bava made Blast Fighter, so he always will have Blast Fighter in his... <laughs> In his in his repertoire, and I kind of like demons as well. Oh yeah, yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, is there any? And I like Blast Fighter. Blast Fighter is goofy as hell. He's just some dude. He's going to his cabin in the woods, and while he's in his cabin, we have some hunters come into the woods, and they're using some questionable means of hunting deer, and it makes the Blast Fighter mad. So I like it already because our hero is anti-hunting. So, <clears throat> Blast Fighter gets his blast gun, which I don't know where he got it from, I don't remember, but it's like this big laser cannon. And the, take, keep in mind, the movie takes place, as far as I know, it takes place when the film came out, like in the mid-80s. But he has like some sort of laser cannon, and he goes out and he, la- and he hunts the hunters with his laser cannon. How can that movie be bad? Well, maybe he hasn't seen it. Oh, that's true. It sounds like, like Captain Planet was probably inspired by Blast Fighter. By Blast Fighter. I'm, it wouldn't surprise me if Ted Turner saw Blast Fighter. <laughs> I'm doing it. Yeah. Yeah, so what are some directors that you just hate the entire filmography of? Kevin Smith. Okay, yeah, that's an easy one. Cameron Crowe. 
Yeah, that's a good one. Guy Ritchie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's really <laughs> easy, actually. The uh, quote-unquote visionary director Timur Bekmembetov, who directed uh, Wanted and the Day Watch, Night Watch. Okay, all right, yeah, that's a good one. Garbage. Uh, Rob Zombie. I want to like Rob Zombie, but I just can't. Yeah, I'm trying to think there's any... Yeah, I think that's a good... I think, think he's a... Yeah, an acceptable pick. Morgan Spurlock. Okay. I don't even want to say this one, but I'm... Eh, I'm not going to say it, because I don't think I've say thought it. it... I don't think I've thought it through completely, but... Say it! John Landis. What? You can say, like, John Landis post... <laughs> Post Twilight Zone. Twilight one? Zone, yeah. All right, I'll say that. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I'll say that. Part of part of it is because of that whole thing. Yeah. Just the thought of him getting away with it really bothers me. Well, what about Spielberg? He was on set as well. He was he produced the film. Yeah. No. Yeah. He could have stepped in and said something. He didn't see any problem with it. Um, and then the most controversial one is. Is, who we've already talked about is Brian De Palma. Okay, which you know, I, I am a De Palma fan, so I don't fault anyone for liking Brian De Palma. How about you, Andy? Okay, well, I think a lot of them you said other than the last two, but if you put the qualifier on John Landis, I think it's fine. I'm gonna hit. I'm gonna start out big time with mine. Okay. Yeah. And there are gonna be some very very angry people when I say this. Joss Whedon. <laughs> I'm throwing it out right away. And I'm not just counting him as a director, as a writer as well. I don't think I've liked any... I mean, I've... I don't know, apart from The Avengers, what other movies I've seen that he's directed. But, uh... I like Buffy. The TV show? Yeah. Yeah, okay. But everything else, no, I'm not not a fan of. <clears throat> yeah, I'm throwing that one out right away. Joss, you know, really, really dislike him. As a as a filmmaker or as a television maker or anything, and I don't understand the love that he garners from people. It makes no it's sense. It's because he's the quote unquote one of us thing. That's what it's all about. I always the dumbest thing. The one of us. There's a reason why there aren't more one of us is making making films. Because they get too much caught up in ooh, wouldn't this be cool to do this, than be concerned about how to make a movie. Or wouldn't it be cool if a character said this without it just completely disrupting the flow of the film? Wouldn't it be cool to put a Galaga joke in the middle mm-hmm. of your movie? Yeah. I mean, well, why the be, hell not? Yeah, wouldn't it be cool to have... Oh, yeah, we're, we're having the supposed inva- alien invasion going on right now. Wouldn't it be funny if one of the heroes punched the other one and knocked them out? Wouldn't it be hilarious? Yeah, I guess it could be funny, but it would be completely illogical. Joss Whedon is the the definition of a pandering filmmaker. Like yeah. he panders to his audience completely. And to and me, that, when you pander to your audience, you don't really respect your audience. And I, that's why I don't like him. Um. Now this is we talked about this guy before, and he has made a couple movies I like. But for the most part, I think the movies that I do like, I like in spite of him. And that's Wes Craven, who I think is just like a god awful director. <laughs> I mean, he is beyond horrible. He doesn't know what the hell he's doing, ever. Like, you watch, like some of his movies, I mean, I, he's just, like, throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. That's what Serpent in the Rainbow is to me. 
he's just throwing shit at the wall and says, oh, I'll do, uh, I'll use some sort of, like, slow motion thing right here for no reason. Okay. I will, uh... But isn't that kind of the charm of them, that they are so kind of... Just no, I just find him so. Strange, I find him very. Like, I find him so aggravating. I I can't. I don't think he doesn't know what he's doing. He's made films he's, that are totally. I, I mean, I know you don't like the Scream films, but he knows what he's doing in the Scream films. Then he's just really bad, and that's all I can figure is that he knows what he's doing. He just he's just really bad at doing it. Toby Hooper after Poltergeist would be. <laughs> No, I take that back because Sex Chainsaw Massacre 2 is really great. That's a shocker. But then everything else is just like horrible. I I just thought he'd be immortalized just because of the of Texas Chainsaw. I mean, everything now. I mean, because that yeah, that's like what easily one of my top favorite movies ever. And Eaten Alive, his big alligator movie, is a lot of fun mm-hmm. and is really stylish too. But other than that, I mean. It's like there's this band Soft Machine. I like their first album a lot, but everything after that I don't like. It's the one hit wonder, sort of speaking. Kind of, yeah, it kind of is, and um, yeah, I think he's an appropriate guy for that. But um, I think Kevin Smith is a perfect example because Kevin Smith is another panderer director, and in a way, he's more of a pandering director than Joss Whedon is, is because Kevin Smith has actually broken away or wanted tried to break away from his pandering films. And he just made bad movies when he did that. Because Jersey Girl isn't so much a film that panders to its audience like his previous films or his films since. It's just a really bad movie. And since then, since the failure of that, he's reverted back to his pandering films. Well, I think he tries to do that with Red State as well. Okay. I'm trying to think of like a real controversy one other than Joss Whedon that I can, that I can use. I'm having a I didn't. Turn. I didn't think it was that. I was more shocked by the Toby Hooper mention. Yeah, but people love Joss Whedon. Yeah. No. Yeah. I thought you were going to come out here say Zemeckis. I don't like Zemeckis films for the most. And then, in fact, I have a hard time thinking of one I do like. So, I mean, I guess Zemeckis. You know, Zemeckis is other than like Forrest Gump, which I truly hate, and Back to the Future, which I think is a truly racist film. I just have like a hard time even like building up that much thought about his other movies. Like, am I, re- am I really supposed to care about Death Becomes Her? I like Death Becomes Her, but... Really? Yeah, okay. I think it's well, fun. I mean, but that's the thing. Am I really supposed to think much? Of- oh, I know another one. John Hughes. I hate John Hughes films. Yeah, I'll put him on my list as well. Because <laughs> John Hughes, and what I hate about John Hughes films, and what I hate about people when they talk about how much they love John Hughes films, I would love for someone to point out an African-American character in a John Hughes movie. Whoa, 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 whoa. You could kind of do that with Woody Allen. Yeah, I know. I do. <clears throat> but I but Woody Allen makes great movies and John John Hughes didn't, so... Well, John Hughes, kinda... John Hughes' sketches... He's another one you were talking about, um, the writer of The Graduate and Closer, not thinking he knows how human beings interact yeah, like john hughes to me is another example of that like no one in his films actually feels like a real person they're a no. caricature of some kind of stereotype or of what uh what we think a teenager is right yeah i guess in a, in a way a, a difference is in the world of a, in, in the universe of a woody allen movie in the universe of say manhattan or annie hall annie and albie 
aren't around African Americans, but I know they exist in that universe. But the handful of people that are in this film, they're just not there, you know? But in the universe of John Hughes and these high schools and stuff, I just think they don't even exist. Like, I can't even think I've seen him in the background of any of his films. And he makes such, like, upper-middle-class, suburban white people movies, and that's what all these kids have their problems. They're just like, oh, woe is me. I have this... My life is horrible. That's a, That's another... Nancy Myers is another director I hate. I mean, there's just these, like, upper-middle-class, upper-class white people, middle-aged white people movies. Meryl Streep and all these movies, her problem is, is that she's got too much money, she doesn't have, like, a normal job, you know, she bakes on the side, she has a beautiful house with great, you know, 20-year-old kids that are all in, like, you know, um, Ivy League colleges, and her big problem is that she has to choose between Alec Baldwin and Steve Martin. How's that supposed to speak to me, you know? And not, as, and not as a man versus a woman, but as a human being. How about Gary Marshall? Oh, Gary Marshall is, oh, he's, yeah, I mean, because he does the exact same thing. That's why, like, Lena Dunham would be one. Where, you know, you're upper middle class, and I'm supposed to feel sorry for you somehow. Like, you don't have to worry about so many of the things that such a giant population of our country and the world have to worry about. But should them only films about people in poverty be made then? No, but it's the way that they they do it because we're supposed to feel sympathy for them. And I just have a hard time feeling sympathy for someone who knows where their next meal is coming from. Someone who's simply bored with their life. That's upper middle class. I can't feel sorry for you. That's like American Beauty. I like I don't feel bad. I don't feel sympathy towards Kevin Spacey's character because he's bored with his life. But that's that's the difference. That's what these films are. They're they're these upper middle class people, upper class people, that they're just simply bored with their life. That's it. I'm bored with my life. I have all these, you know, I have Alec Baldwin and Steve Martin. They both want me. What should I do? Like, how am I supposed to feel sorry for that, you know? Gross. But you know what I mean? I mean, how am I, how do, how am I supposed to feel sorry for that? Lena Dunham's films, like, oh, my parents are upper middle class, and I went to a really great school, and <clears throat> I just graduated from college. I don't know what to do with myself. Oh, how am I supposed to feel sorry for that? And so I hate these films that want me to feel sorry for these upper-middle-class white people that have no problems. So take your problems someplace else. I don't want to hear about them. These first-world problems. If you give me a real problem in this film, if you say this upper-middle-class person, you know what, somehow, you know, something happens to them where, yeah... Well, well then justify a movie like Safe, then. Your love of a movie like Safe. Well, I mean, no. You know, you can look at that one, because I always talked about how that's like a feminist picture. Mm Mm-hmm. You know what, I do feel sympathy for... For a female that is stuck in a socially constructed environment that she really had no choice to be a part of. I'm just, I'm saying that I don't think all movies that deal with what you're talking about are terrible. I think they're... No, I'm not saying that they're all terrible either, but I just have a harder time. They're really going to have to impress me for me to get over the fact that I just don't care about your problem. Because it's not a real, you know what, in my mind it's not a real problem. And I, I know that that's not fair to say. In in the real in the real world, that's not fair to say. But I think when talking about a movie, that's fine to say because it's not a you know Lena Dunham and Tiny Furniture isn't a real person. So I think it's fair to say in that regard. Now, a real person that's suffering from something, okay, I will have sympathy for you. 
but in, within in, within the world of a film, I just have a hard time feeling sympathy for you. But then, what about Woody Allen films? <laughs> he makes really great movies, though. That's the difference. He makes really great movies. Again, that's all. And that's why I said if you if you made a movie if it if you made a if John Hughes made a movie that impressed me enough, then I would be like, you know what? I don't care. You know, in the Breakfast Club, Ali Sheedy, not Ali Sheedy. Um, Molly Ringwald does have it hard. But, you know, it's not that good. It's not even that good to begin with. The character isn't that compelling. I don't even know why she thinks she has it that hard. I don't know why Emilio West of Us thinks he has it that hard. His character isn't that... They're, they're not that well-developed or anything. So they just come across as people that are whining. So any other directors or... That's all I got right now. I think I struck a nerve with you with uh, my hatred of the the white people problem movie. <laughs> I know you're using these specific examples, but if that were really the case, you'd be alienating yourself from, I think, the majority... The majority of movies, yeah. Yeah. No. I think, like, the the Batman character himself is a problematic character because he is an incredibly wealthy white man. And I actually find the Christopher Nolan films somewhat fascist because of, of those elements. Well, I, I think... <laughs> At some point, you do have to check your politics at the door and just kind of, you know. Yeah, so I was going to say, I do, and I enjoy the Christopher Nolan Batman film, so I can enjoy him even when I notice that I think they're problematic in some regard. I mean, you may dislike Lena Dunham, but I, Lena Dunham is doing her own thing, and you either like that or you don't, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that watch those, watch her stuff and completely relate to it. I kind of like kind of the Whit Stillman movies, and that's what he does. Yeah, I mean... Maybe those films just aren't made for you, but they have their audience, and I think they serve yeah, their know. purpose in the the zeitgeist or whatever. But well, Cameron Crowe has his audiences as well. Yeah, I just I can't deal with the the saccharine nature of Cameron Crowe movies. It's just too much. Um. Okay. So thank you, Chris, for sending that email. Hopefully, you received some sufficient responses to your questions, and. uh Please write us Tristan again. Right back. He's like, I love Nancy Myers. Okay, so Andy, what are we reviewing on the next episode? Next up, next episode, we'll be looking at my kind of movie. Next episode, we'll be looking at Roger Corman's 1967 counterculture film, The Trip, released by AIP. Bunch of middle class white people getting drugged. Out. <laughs> They're not. Okay. <laughs> well, one's middle class. Peter Fonda's middle class. You know what, if Nancy Myers made movies where Meryl Streep dropped the LSD to cope with her, you know, boredom or whatever, I'd be okay with that. But why does that make it okay, then? Because at least it's going to be cool visuals. Right? But why? It's still going to be Nancy Myers directing an LSD sequence. I want to see what Nancy Myers' LSD sequence is like, then. Okay. So Andy can be heard on the Stephen Andy Meet Batman podcast and followed on Letterboxd, where I can be found as well. Speaking of some Stephen Bat Stephen Andy Meet Batman news, Steve messaged me the other day and said, I "Want to record some new episodes soon?" Well, what about the old ones? <laughs> where the, what's happening to those? We'll worry. We'll worry about those when the time comes. I'm just I'm just letting that out there for any fans that may be listening. Well, that's exciting news. So when that starts again, you can expect to hear me on the show by myself. <laughs> I, I, but he did say he wants to be called Stephen and Andy meet Nancy Myers.
Oh, okay. So, that's a shame. Film Jive can be found at filmjive.wordpress.com, Facebook, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes, and you can get in touch with us by sending your emails for the listener feedback segment to filmjive at gmail.com. That's everything for this episode. Thank you for listening to the Film Jive podcast. Please tune in next episode, and until next time, keep on jiving.